Good morning. We're in part four of our series. This is a five-part series, and so next week we're ending this. I'll give you a quick recap of what we've been talking about so that you, you, you know what we're talking about. We've been camping on Acts chapter 2, verse 42 for the past few weeks. Uh, let me set up the stage for you guys. Um, Jesus died on the cross. He rose again, and this thing called the church started. And we, all, we wanted to know what was the thing that made this church? Like, what is the core of this church? What was central to it? And so a historian, his name is Luke, he observed a lot of things. He did a lot of interviews. And after looking at everything, he said, I've narrowed it down to four things. I saw this church thing start, and there's four things that they focused on. And so he gives it to us in 242, Acts 2.42. It says, they devoted themselves. And we talked about how the word devoted means to not just like focus on something, but to make it into a habit. They did it over and over until they felt like it was part of their DNA. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so I made a list for you guys so that's easier to see. I think sometimes when you make it into list form, it's easier to see. But when we dive into these words and these, these, these terms, we discover that while they meant what they meant back then in terms of these are the four things and they knew exactly what those four things were, over the years... Our Christian culture, Western Christian culture, has taken these words and made it mean something else. So we're trying to get back to what it actually meant. And so if the first week we talked about how the apostles' teachings, we think it's about like, oh yeah, every week they get together and talk about how Jesus died and rose again. But they talked about more than that. When they talked about apostles' teachings, they were actually talking about the implications. The implications of, well, what does it mean now? Like, if Jesus really died and rose again, what, what does that require of me? Do I need to change anything, the way, or the way that I see the world, the way that I act, the way they behave? Do I have to change anything? And so they got together and they talked about this all the time. One person would get up and say, yeah, I think um, I need to start reconciling with so-and-so. I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Or I think I need to start thinking the way that, that, that I've been spending money. I, need to, I think I need to change that. And so they would get together and talk about that, and that was basically the first century church. The second thing is this fellowship, and the word fellowship... Today in Christian culture, we kind of take that word and say, like, oh, that means to hang out. But the word fellowship back then didn't really mean to hang out. I mean, hanging out was part of it. But what we discovered um, a few weeks ago was that the word fellowship actually is better translated. The word koinonia means to share, sharing, sharing resources with each other. If there's somebody in need in your church, you say, hey, you know, I have two of these, and I'm only using one of them. Would you like the other one? Or, or if they have need and you have something that you don't need but doesn't really match their needs, in the first century church, they sold it and used the money to actually help the people, help their neighbors, help the people around them. And so nobody would have anything in need. And it's not like people told them to do it because that would be like communism. That's not good, right? People just felt the need to just share the stuff they had with each other because that was just a loving thing to do. Nobody said, hey, you, I see you have two things you need to share. Nobody did that. People were just moved in their hearts to just sell what they had to help the people around them. And that's the second thing that Luke observed. He said, I saw that they were doing these things where they were talking about the implications, but I also saw them doing this thing called koinonia, this thing called fellowship, where they shared the things that they had with each other just out of love. The third thing, Lori spoke on this last week, which is this breaking bread. And we talked about how breaking bread in that culture didn't just mean inviting people over to eat. It actually meant that you were actually sharing a meal. It's, it's not just eating, but you're sharing a meal. And she talked about how sharing a meal in that culture was not just, you know, saying like, I have two loaves of bread, how would you like to eat one? But the culture back then actually dictated that eat, sharing a meal with somebody was actually a very intimate thing. It was something that you only did with people that you were committed to making relationships with. So, so the, the third one is basically, I'm here to commit to relationships. 
And in most cases, they were sharing their meals with people who were taboo to have meals with. So back in those days, the Jews, they only hung out with people who were the same ethnicity as them. All of a sudden, in this first century church, they started saying, I'm going to start inviting people of a different race to my table and see what happens. And not only that, it's not just one meal. I'm going to commit to this relationship. I'm going to make it work. Usually slaves don't eat at the same table as the slave owners. I'm gonna, now I'm a Christian, and I think one of the implications is that I'm going to commit to building this relationship. I'm going to invite that slave to eat at the table with me, and I'm going to commit to it. So Luke, he's looking at this thing. He's like, okay, not only were they doing the apostles' teaching, which is learning the implications, not only were they doing this thing called fellowship, which is sharing one, with one another, they were committing themselves to relationships. And it was groundbreaking. Nobody at the time, really, in that time, you know, 2,000 years ago, nobody has ever seen something like this happen. Today it's more commonplace, but back then, it was groundbreaking. And now we're on the fourth one, which is prayer. Okay, and prayer is a very interesting thing because you're like, okay, prayer probably means prayer, right? And I would say, yeah. Okay, and, and, and as a matter of fact, prayer is such an important thing because if you look at the list of four things on the screen, you'll notice that the top three you're like, yeah, I kind of do that. And, but if you're like getting to the fourth thing on the list and you're like, yeah, but I don't pray that much. Do I really need to pray? I mean, don't you think the top three are just revolutionary in itself? Don't you think that's like the important stuff are the top three? Yes, the top three are important. But if you only do the top three of the list, you're just basically a social club that likes to do good things. What makes this thing, called a, what makes this thing into a church and not just another social club is that there's something that's really unique about prayer. One of my favorite scholars, his name is N.T. Wright, he wrote this about this list. And whenever people do all these things, he's talking about the first three things on the list, but neglect prayer, they are quite simply forgetting that Christians are supposed to be heaven and earth people. He's saying that when you pray, you're doing something interesting. God is creating a world in the future of something, of, of utopia, okay? And he's saying that when we are actually praying, what we're doing is we're looking to what God has for us in the future and asking him, when we pray, can you bring some of that, can you spill some of that over into the present day right now? And that's why we pray. We pray and say, God, I need healing in certain things, yeah. right? And when we pray for healing, what we're actually saying is, can you bring some of that perfect world and spill it into this world just a little bit right now because I need it right now? That's what prayer is. And he's saying, if you are a Christian, you are a person who believes in this heaven, which is not yet, and earth, which is now, right? You're basically a person who has their feet in both sides of the world. And when you pray, we're bringing the two together. And so he says, prayer is a very important thing in this list because it, it, without it, you're just focused on what's happening now, but you're not focused on what God wants ha to happen right here now on this earth right now. He continues this quote. He says, prayer makes no sense whatsoever unless heaven and earth are designed to be joined together and we can share in that already right now, right here. Prayer is a very, very important part of the church, and this is why it's so important. Now, let me show you the list again, these three things, right? Now, let me kind of tell you something about prayer. When you look at the original language, because the book of Acts was written in Greek, ancient Greek, okay, and so there's some things that are lost in translation. The word prayer, if you read the Acts 4, 20, uh, 242, it actually doesn't say prayer. It actually says this, the prayers, you're like, oh, <laughs> there's a definite article, and it's actually plural. The word the is in there. As a matter of fact, if you, uh, we use the New International Version. If you use any other version like the New King James, you'll find it this way. You'll find the word the prayers in there. You'll, um, if you use New Standard, New Revised Standard Version, you'll find the word the in front of the word prayer. 
Okay, so what, is, what does that mean? How does that change anything? Okay, when you put the word the in front of something, okay, like if I were to say my name is not just Kotz, but I'm the Kotz, it changes something, okay? Or, or, okay, for those of you guys, depending on where you are in your relationships, okay? When I liked a girl, this is high school, okay? When I liked a girl, and I'm kind of like, hey, I think we're getting close, this is kind of cool, you know? And it's like, hey, you know, I'm sitting next to you, and it's not an accident that we're sitting next to each other. And if she says, Cos, we need to have the talk. It's not a talk, it's the talk. Like, she and I would know exactly what that talk is because it's already determined between the, the context we're in what the talk is referring to. But let's just say we're together already, right? We made it official and stuff. And then things start getting rocky. And then she calls me and says, Cos, we need to have the talk. I know what the talk is because in the context we're in, we know exactly what that talk is. Or if a relationship is heading in a good direction, and I call up, you know, like if I were to call like my wife's parents before we're married, and I said, um, Stan and Sandy, I think we need to have uh, the talk. They probably know what exactly what the talk is, right? When somebody puts the definite article the in front of a word, it's, we already know what it is because it's already been predetermined in our culture what that the stands for. Does that make sense? The actually points to an already established thing. So when they talk about the prayers, right, they're not referring to a prayer that you just make up on a whim. It's a prayer that's pre-existing that they're referring to. So, okay, if I were to put prayers into two categories, the first one I would call is original prayers. These are my terms, by the way, so you're not going to find it anywhere else. Well, maybe, but I call the first one original prayers. These are the prayers that we typically pray. Whatever is in our hearts, we just say, God, this is how I'm feeling. And you just kind of pour yourself out. And this is a really good kind of prayer. I encourage everybody to do this all the time. So you could say, like, it's like, Lord, thank you so much for this broccoli. It's so green and so perfectly cooked. And I know it's good for me. Thank you so much for that. And the person I'm sharing this meal with, thank you for this person that's sitting next to me. And, oh, I'm so lucky because I'm not alone today. And, and you're just kind of like just letting your heart pour out. And that's a very organic kind of prayer. That's why it's called an original prayer. I call it original prayer because that prayer is unique to you, right? If, you're, if it's before midterms or finals, you're like, Lord, help me study for this test. I know I can't do this without your strength because I have not gone to class half the year. You know, like, please help me. And then you're like, this is an original prayer. I'm pretty sure nobody else in the Old Testament prayed that prayer, right? And so you're like, Lord, I will do anything. I will sacrifice my first, no, I would never, you know, like, I'll do anything to pass this grade because my parents are going to kill me. And if they kill me, then I, you know, right. So like, original prayers. This is what's on your heart. And you'll find a lot of that in the Bible too, where people are just, just saying, God, this is me, you know, this is me in front of you, just telling you exactly how I'm feeling. Nothing censored. I, this is just how I feel. And that's really good. But that's not the prayers that the book of Acts is referring to here. Like I said, I don't want to make you think that this is a bad thing. I want you to do that. I'm just saying that in Acts 2.42, the prayers they're referring to is not that type of prayer. Sure, I'm sure they got together and they had prayers, original prayers. They prayed for each other's health, and they're like probably in a circle and saying, hey, you know, do you have any prayer requests? Yes, let's, Johnny, what do you have? Yeah, oh, okay, we'll pray for that. Okay, hey, hey, Susie, I heard that your mom was sick. Oh, okay, we'll pray for that. Hey, how's your job interview going, man? Like, like I'm sure they had original prayers. But what I like to call this, the second type of prayer is called a prescribed prayer. Pre meaning before, scribe means it's been written. It's a pre-written type of prayer. This is what Luke watched and said, this I need to record. I need to make sure that thousands of years from now when people read the book of Acts, that they know that the first church was built on, on the fourth element would be 
these prescribed prayers. Now, there's a, there's a fancy word for this. Some of you guys know what these words are. Uh, the prescribed prayers is what we like to call liturgies. Liturgies. Okay, and the difference between the two is when you have an original prayer, what you're doing is you're pouring yourself out to God, saying, God, this is who I am. God, this is what I'm struggling with. God, this is what I'm frustrated with. God, this is what I'm thankful for. God, this is what I need in my life. That's an original prayer, and that's good. But prescribed prayers does the exact opposite of that. See, where one, you're asking God to move on your behalf, prescribed prayers is actually saying, God, I want you to change me. It's a very different kind of way of looking at prayer. So, um, so when we look at these, these prayers that the first century prayed, first century churches prayed, we notice a few things. We notice, like, like, looking at the context of the verse, we discover, like, okay, one of the things we know is that this prayer was not done privately. Because in the book of Acts, chapter 2, it says that they met together in groups. And when they met in groups, they did those four things. So we know the first thing is that the first church dedicated themselves to reciting prescribed prayers corporately. It was not a private thing. And there's definitely a good thing in praying together, okay? And so where else do we see this in the book of Acts? Well, later on, way later on in the book of Acts, we actually see an evolution of this. Okay, so that this idea of reciting pre-written prayers... We see that happen later on in the Bible, and it's been evolving. It's changed a little bit. I want to show you that. This is chapter 16, verse 22. And oh, before I read this, I just want to give you a context of this. There's a guy named Paul. Paul is the first, one of the first Christian leaders, and he's going around town just telling people about Jesus. They're like, this is the good news. Jesus, you know, he's come down, and he's like done all these amazing things. He died, and he rose again. He's telling everybody about the good news of Jesus. And in doing so, he has people who decided to come along with him on this journey. One of those guys, his name is Silas. And Silas, as they're traveling, they see this man who's in trouble, and he sees this woman like, who are in trouble, and he prays for them, and they get better. And, and it turns out, in one of those situations, he prays for somebody, the person gets better. Turns out there's another person who's depending on that person's ailment to make money. And so by healing that person, that person got in trouble. And so that person said, okay, I'm so angry at Paul that I'm going to get him in prison by falsely accusing him. And now he's in prison now. That's where we pick up the story. The crowd joined in an attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, the reason it says inner cell is because in those days, there's an outer layer, middle, and the more you get into the center, the inner layer of the prison, it was a more of a higher security prison. Basically, the light crime criminals are on the outside, and the heavy peop- the people who like, murdered somebody or whatever, they go into the middle. Paul didn't do any of that, but because he was falsely accused, they made it look like he did something really, really bad. He was put in the inner cell, and then he was put in stocks. And not only that, if archaeological digs discovered that the people who were in the inner cell, the ceilings were about eye height, because they believed that if, the, you know, if, if they have to go like this, and if you're listening to this online, you're not, you don't know what this is. Um, you lower yourself, right? Um, you can't escape that fast. So, so imagine you're in a dark place because the windows are on the outer cells, right? There's no window, so it's really dark. You have a torch that's lighting the whole room in a really mediocre way, right? And you're not, you, you can never stand up straight. And you have all these like gates and locks and stuff like that. And, then, and you're also in stock. So that's the kind of situation you're in. Okay, so Paul and Silas are in that cell. And this is what they do while they're in that cell. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, this is interesting. When they were praying, 
they were praying liturgical prayers. They were praying pre-written prayers, prescribed prayers. And what's interesting about this word hymns here is there's an implication here that some of the prayers that they were praying, they couldn't memorize them, right? Some people read it out loud because they have like a scroll or something, but most people have to memorize them. And the best way for people to memorize them is by making, giving a little tune to it. So it became a song eventually. They called them hymns. So you see this evolution that originally it was this type of like um, reciting prayers that were written for them previously, right? But now there's music to it because that way they could remember it. As a matter of fact, some of these hymns are actually taken straight out of the book of Psalms. In the middle of the Bible, there's all these poems and songs about, about how people feel about God and how they feel about their life situation. And so these people added music and tune and, and maybe sometimes some rituals to it to help them remember what to say next, what's going to, you know, where I'm supposed to go with this prayer, etc. right? And so here we have an example of what happened in the first church that, you know, years later, this is what it's looking like now. Now let's see what happens after they sing these songs. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Now this is a description of what happened. It's not a prescription, meaning... If you're like, I want to make the earth shake, oh, then I need to sing hymns. No, that's not what this verse is saying. It's just saying, as they were singing, this happened, okay? So (laughs) it's a description of what happened. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. In those days, cultural context, in those days, prisoners, Roman uh, Roman prison guards, they, were so, they need to be so responsible with the job they were given that if they failed at what they were supposed to do, the, the punishment that was supposed to come to the prisoners is now going to be put, in, put on the prisoner, uh, prison guard, and not only just the prison guard, but his family. And so when he saw all the gates open and he realized, oh no, everybody's gone, he took his sword and decided to take his own life because he knew what was coming to him and taking his own life was actually better than actually stay, sticking around and see what, the, what punishment would happen. But then watch what happens here in verse uh, 28. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Nobody left. The doors are open. Nobody left. We're, all, we're not just talking about Paul and Silas. We're talking about the murderers and all the crazy criminals that are put in the inner cell. They also didn't leave. Why? It's because somehow they were transformed. There's something about these prescribed prayers that has this this amazing property that has the ability to change your heart. That's the biggest difference between original prayers and prescribed prayers. When you talk about original prayers, you're just letting everything that's inside of you come to God and say, this is what I'm feeling right now. This is what I'm sensing right now. But when you do prescribed prayers, you're reading other people's prayers that are designed to change you from the inside out. And that's the power of this prayer that the first century church was doing. And... And so there's something really interesting about these prayers. And this is the best way I could put it. Prescribed prayers allows God's spirit to, a, a clear path to transform you. If there are walls in your life, if God's trying to penetrate into your life and say, I want to transform you, I want to change you, I created you to be this amazing human being, and you haven't reached your potential yet because you're not letting me transform you from the inside out. Okay, I'm not letting, so what, what these prayers do is basically it parts these walls around your heart and it gives the spirit of God a direct path to your heart so they can stretch molding you and changing and shaping you. That is the power of this thing. Okay, now, this was a very common practice in the Jewish culture. So in the Old Testament, you see people praying um, these prescribed prayers. One of the most famous ones is called the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. There's, there's a prayer there that they pray at least once a day, sometimes two to three times a day. 
at a set time. They made it such a big part of their lives that they did it. But in the early Christian church, they did it also. But for some reason over the years, this liturgical understanding of prayer started to kind of phase out because we care more about, like, well, this is how I'm feeling, and I can't really relate to that prayer, so I'm just going to pray my own prayer. Well, there's a person who is an Orthodox Jew, this lady. Her name is Lauren Winner. She became a Christian in the middle of her life, and she was enjoying the fact that Jesus is, has died and rose again, and he's, you know, she's like, this is good news. I'm going to live according to Jesus from now on. But she said the one thing that she really missed was, were those prescribed prayers. And so she started doing some research, and she found books on prayer, and then she found this book called the Book of Common Prayer, which you could buy on Amazon. I'm not, you know, you, could, you don't have to buy it if you don't want to, right? You could probably find it online for free. And, and so as they were, like, as she was looking through all, you know, all these things, she realized that she, while she did miss these prescribed prayers, that she has a hard time connecting with them. And so, and by the way, Lauren Winner, she's a, she's a, she was an Orthodox Jew. She became a Christian, and now she works as an associate professor at Duke Divine, Divine, the School of Divinity. And I want to read to you what she said. This is really interesting. She says, liturgy can be dull, and its dullness can be distracting. Sometimes I set aside time specifically for prayer. I turn off the ringer on my phone and light a candle and sit in the best praying chair that I could, I could find. And even then... I can look down at the prayer book in my hands and realize that I've been reading aloud for 10 minutes, yet I have no idea what I just read. My mouth may have been mouthing psalms, but my brain was thinking grocery lists and weekend plans. Now, I want to put the next, screen, the next paragraph on the screen because this is really interesting what she says. She says, but if rotness, that means repetitiveness, is a danger, is also way liturgy works. She's like, it's actually by design if you feel like, oh gosh, this is so mundane, this is like just repetitive, this is habitual, he's like, that's the whole point of liturgies. When you don't have to think all the time about the words that you are going to say next, you are free to fully enter into the act of praying. You are free to participate in the life of God. What she's saying is this. When you're praying, you're usually saying like, Lord, thank you so much for today. Uh, I, I want to uh, thank you for... Um, Oh, this chair. I just want to say thank you so much for this chair. And, uh, um, oh, and there's that thing in my life that I've been asking you about. I just want to bring that to your attention again because you haven't done anything. And, uh, 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 and you're thinking about what you need to pray about. What she is saying is sometimes thinking about what you need to pray about gets in the way of your prayer life, which is kind of weird. But she's saying it actually pushes all those distractions apart and allows you to focus on God in the way that he wants to be approached. She continues, she says, put differently, here's another way of putting it, I have sometimes set aside my prayer book for days and weeks on end, and I find at the end of those days, days and weeks on end that I have lapsed into narcissism, meaning when I, I realize that when I'm praying original prayers, I discover that all my prayers are about me all of a sudden. Help me do this. Grant me this. Help me with this test. Help me with that job interview. Do you know, right? It becomes about me, 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 me. And if not me, it's like about my friends and my family members. And you don't, you don't even think about the person who's living down the street from you because you're only praying for the people that you know, right? Uh, though, meaning, um, though meaning to commune with or uh, reverence or at least acknowledge God, I wind up take, talking to myself about my emotions de jour. I worry about my mother's health. I stress about money. Or more happily, I bop up and down with excitement about good news or sunshine or life in general. But I never get much further than that. It is in returning to my prayer book that places me, places me in words that ask me to confess my sins, even when I can't think of any red-letter deeds recently committed. Words that ask me to pray for presidents 
and homeless people and everyone in between. Words that praise God even on mornings when I wonder if God exists at all. It forces her to pray for things that, that's not even on her radar that God is trying to bring to her attention. That if you just keep praying the prayers that comes to your mind, you're only going to pray for the things that are related to you. But when you have a book of prayer, you start praying for things that God wants to put on your radar, but you're so busy thinking about what you need that you don't even see it in your life. And then she concludes it with this paragraph. Sometimes it is great when in prayer we can express to God just what we feel. So he's like, that's not a bad thing. Original prayers are just fine, okay? But better still when in the act of praying our feelings change. Like when you pray these prescribed prayers, it brings something to your attention, and now you're praying for different things. And she's like, that's even better. Liturgy is not, in the end, open to our emotional whims. It repoints the person praying, taking him somewhere else. This is the power of liturgical prayers. You know, when it comes to liturgical prayers, I know that it seems very old-fashioned. But there's definitely a value for it that we've lost over the years. So I want to do a little practice right now, if it's okay with you guys. We're going to do one liturgical prayer together. And it's a prayer that was written by a man named St. Francis of Assisi. That's about 800 years ago, so it's it's an old prayer. He's one of my favorite saints. And that's why I'm going to make you pray this with me, okay? And this is how we're going to do this. I'm going to ask everybody here to stand, because this is how we do it. Different liturgical prayers have different forms. Sometimes it requires me to say something and you respond to me and so forth. But what we're going to do is we're going to pray this together, okay? Some people read faster, some people read slower, and that's okay. But we're going to do it together because there's something that's very important about praying corporately. Okay, so let's show the screen. Okay, let's read this together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Next screen. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, not so much to be understood as to understand, not so much to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we awake to eternal life. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, how many of you guys, when you prayed that prayer, you were thinking, I have never prayed that before in my life? Because that's the nature of a liturgical prayer. It brings to mind things that you probably wouldn't think of on your own. Like, who would have thought of these things, right? Now, by the way, I was talking about the evolution of these things called liturgical prayers. There are certain things that people have written ahead of time that you may not be able to relate to, okay? But you're going to pray them anyways because you know it's good for our soul because it transforms us. And then sometimes people add tunes to it, music to it, because it's easier to remember. Or maybe we'll do it more often if there's music to it, right? And if you're like, gosh, I've never prayed a prayer that somebody else has written for me. I've never done that before. The answer is, actually, you have. You've done it many, many times before. In what setting have we actually spoken words that somebody else has written before that has a tune to it? It's called worship songs, right? You didn't write these songs. These aren't the words that you, you put together yourself. Other people have written this before you. Now, they're not 800 years old. Okay, some songs are really old, okay? 
<clears throat> but the nature of worship song is basically somebody perfectly constructed together these words together that have a lot of meaning that has the power to change our hearts. And we stand together corporately as a congregation and we look at the screen that has the lyrics and we sing as best as we can because we know that somehow, even though I can't relate to this song sometimes, it is good for my soul because it's helping me realize and center me and repoints me to the thing that, needs to be, that my heart needs to be pointed at. So what we're going to do today, we just did the old school way of doing a liturgical prayer. Now we're going to move on to worship, which is basically our modern version of a liturgical prayer. Now, just because you like worship song doesn't mean like I don't have to do the old school version anymore. I think it's, there's great value in doing liturgical prayers. The oldest liturgical prayer dates back to, that we still have on file, goes back to 8200. That's the oldest one we have. And, and when I read it, it's like, wow. They were so much deeper than anybody I know today. You know? And when I read it, and I, I go through the same liturgical prayer. My, I'll tell you a little bit about my, my, my pattern in my life. I, pick, um, I, I receive this email where it gives me one prayer, liturgical prayer, and it's the same prayer for the whole week. And so I pray the same thing over and over and over again every day of the week. And then tomorrow, which is Monday, I'll get my new one, and I'll pray that over and over and over again. And always, every single time I read it, it brings to mind things that I would never have brought to my own mind. And now I have a new thing to pray for. And that's the power of, of, of these prescribed prayers. And so when they looked at the first church, Luke is looking at the first church, and he's saying, I see four things that form the first church, and I think this is so important that I need to write this down. Not to say they did more than those four things, but he's like, these are the four things that are really unique to this generation. And he says, the first thing is, these people, they got together and talked about the implications of what it meant for Jesus to die and rise again. What does that mean for us? What do we have to change about the way we live? How should we change the way we view the world? How should we view our enemies? What should we look at the people that we've gotten in fights with? What, sh- what should we be celebrating about? What should we not be celebrating about? These are the things they talked about. And then the second thing is they looked at the people and saying, like, look at these people. They're, they're sharing things with each other. There's somebody in need here, and all of a sudden, this person who had two something, they sold that thing and helped this person out just out of love. Wow, what, what is up with this community of people? And then he also looked over here and was like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. The most intimate thing you could do with somebody, sharing a meal with somebody, they're doing it, but they're not just doing it with each other. For thousands of years, they only ate meals with people who they were related with, people who were in the same ethnic group. All of a sudden, they're eating with people, that means they're committing to relationship, with people that they were not related to, they don't look like each other, they don't even speak the same language sometimes, they're eating together, what is going on here? And on that great list of things, he said, and these people recite the same prayers every single day together they get together and they like i don't even know if they could relate to it but they're all praying the same thing but i also notice that their hearts are changing and they're becoming more and more the person that god wants them to be wow and so luke writes all those four things on the list and says this is the core this is essential of what a church is now over the years we've added things to it but as long as we have those four things in place we are a church and I pray that this church will continue in these, in these four traditions. That we continue to talk about the implications of what, church is, that, of what Jesus' life and death is all about. That we continue to share a resource with each other just out of love, not because somebody told you to do it. Right? That we continue to, to break like, social barriers and, and we have meals and we do the most intimate things with the people that, that society has told us that we're not supposed to be with. You know, people who are always at odds with each other. Maybe people on different political parties are now having meals together. People who historically, racially, they didn't get along together, but now they're getting, to, getting along together. People of different sexual orientations are finally meeting together and having meals together. 
He's like, that's what the first church looked like. And not only that, they got together and they probably added a tune to what they were saying and they came together and worshiped. And they realized that the core of what they are is all about having that relationship with Jesus. That Jesus wants to change our hearts and make us more and more into the person that he created us to be. And my prayer is that we become that kind of church. Amen? Now there's one more sermon after this next week. And we're going to talk about how this church, Westlight, how we, and we're talking about our vision and everything, how we fit into all this. And, and uh, I don't want you to miss that because it's going to be really good. Because um, I've already worked on that message. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is so good. <laughs> okay, now I'm raising your expectations. Lower it now, lower it. Um, but I want to make one more point before we close in prayer. These four things we just listed, it's good. It's great. But if you think that we could accomplish that on a Sunday morning once a week, then we're kidding ourselves. We are. How do we even know, how do we even know the needs of the people around us on a Sunday morning where we're just saying, hey, God bless you, good to see you, hey, you know, did you watch the game last week? You know, like that kind of stuff. We can't. We need to have good, intimate relationships. How can we break bread and discover what our differences are and then say, but you know what, Jesus is greater than those differences. Let's meet together and commit to this relationship, making it work. How can we do that on a Sunday morning? This is why our church has small groups. We call them life groups. This is why life groups are so important because we get together, in some life groups we get together and we share a meal together and we talk about how we're doing in life, what can we pray for each other, right? We worship together, we, study, we talk about the implications of the gospel together. It's hard to do that in this setting and that's why we have a separate thing in the middle of the week where we get together and we just talk about those things. And we believe in this so much that we're not just saying, okay, if you're an adult, go and do it. We also have a youth life group where twice a month they get together and they talk about what's important in their lives and you know, some of the things. And I encourage you guys, if you're a parent who have kids in middle, high, and high school, make sure they go to these groups because these things are things that may not make much of a difference now, but we want them, them to get into a habit of meeting in groups now so that in the future, when they're out of high school and they're in college, they're like, you know what, my life feels somewhat off because I don't have my own group. Like, that's how important these things are because that is what makes the church. And we don't want to be just a social gathering. We're good at socializing here at Westlight, but we want to make sure we're more than that, that we're all about worshiping God and that because of that, we're doing those other three things. Amen?